A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 13. Through chapter 13. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. So, Crossland, we are pretty far ahead on recording. We've been intentionally front-loading our recordings. But I'm pretty sure this is the last time we're recording this year. Yes. Yeah, we, we actually worked through the schedule. This is our last recording of 2021. Good call. Did you some? Did you have some uh, thoughts on that? No, but this is going to be our, I, I guess my one thought is this is going to be our first full year where start to finish, we released an episode every single Thursday. It's a fair point. And at least one a week. We, we occasionally release two. Yeah, that's true. So. But it feels mm. good, man. In some crazy weeks, three, because we were insane at a certain point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is so great to have to have made it to this point and to all of you listening at home, whether you are new to the show and listening because we've we've moved into Mistborn or been with us the whole time through Red Rising and onward and upward. Thank you. Cheers and happy new year. I guess we drink to that, huh? Yeah, drink to that. So with that, I believe today is our 74th episode, and it is our fourth episode discussing Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 9 through 13. But before we do that, first, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having on this fine, snowy, windy, wintry evening? Something perfect for snowy, wintry, windy evenings. <laughs> I made eggnog. So nice. recently... How to Drink, the YouTube channel, released a, an episode on eggnog again. And I took the, the uh, recipe from that episode. So half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, half an ounce of simple syrup, two ounces of bourbon, a full egg, dry shaken, and then add ice, shake it again, and then strained. And then I just garnished it with nutmeg. I think he garnished it with... Good. It's also not like... I think he makes a good point or a big point of orange zest as well, but I didn't have an orange. So it's, it's nice and light and creamy and tasty. I like eggnog in general. So this is really good. Whoa. So you effectively actually made your own eggnog. Holy yeah. shit. That sounds great. I'm going to try that. That is, that's sweet. I think he makes a good point or a big point of, of it in the, in the video. So I won't rehash it too much, but a lot of the store-bought eggnogs, seem to be more trying to represent Tom and Jerry, which is more of a batter. So it's way thicker. This is more like a custard. Yeah. This is less like that. This is a lot thinner. I don't know. It's good. Huh? Really good. I will have to give that a go. Cause I'm a huge fan of eggnog and I actually haven't had any this season so far, mostly due to schedule and not thinking about it. Each time I'm at the grocery store, I'm always like, just, I've just been efficient and haven't shopped around or spent time to like look at stuff. So, wow, that's uh that I... sounds awesome. I completely missed, uh, completely missed a part of that. After, after straining out of the shaker, top it with 
about three ounces of whole milk. Okay, got it. Yep. I yep, was yep, like, yep. it's just egg. Interesting. But <laughs> no. milk, milk makes sense. In milk there. goes in like, there too. So I fucked up in writing the okay. recipe. No, and again, not not that big of a deal. I was just thinking about. It. I'm like, really, it's only egg. Weird. And you know, saying that there's milk in there, it's like, okay, all right. So it's a little bit creamier. Like it is. It is what mm. I imagine it to be. Mostly, you know. As as far as a mixture goes, really, so that makes yeah. sense to me. Sorry, sorry about that <laughs> that flub right there. Definitely <laughs> added the milk in my glass. I just didn't put it on the recipe sheet. So no big deal. What what are you following that up with? I have a beer from Modest Brewing Company out of Minneapolis called Liquid Strata Crystals. So double dry hop Strata New England IPA. Nice, nice. So. Yeah. That sounds haven't opened Have you tried it yet? yet? Nope. Yeah, entirely entirely strata. Top to bottom. Hmm. Okay. Cool. I, because of the day that I described in kind of our little devil's cut segment, I basically rushed in home after seeing the new Spider-Man movie, immediately made the easiest, quickest, and drink that I'm the most familiar with, all of the ratios, a old fashioned pretty classic pretty straight up if you've listened to the podcast you know our old-fashioned design but basically two to one bourbon does simple two dashes bitters and a little orange peel perfect so yeah this is this has been a crazy crazy couple weeks so this is your absolutely your go-to when your things are crazy so i think you've done this a few times in the last couple episodes I think it slipped into some other episodes. I think in Mistborn, I've mostly been deliberate in trying to avoid it. I know that in like episode two, I had a screwdriver. Episode one, I did the Survivor of Hats and Drink. Episode three last week, I did a modified summer old fashioned, I called it, which is which was bourbon to orange juice to orange bitters to amaretto was kind of the the mixture there but i think in literally every other show that we did i had an old-fashioned i think right. in any other yeah. show that wasn't a maid mistborn like wasn't a words and whiskey show i had an old-fashioned right okay yep that makes sense yeah it checks out i'm following out. that up with a beer from new anthem brewing out of wilmington a voice in the midst spelt m-i-d-s-t not m-i-s-t but you can imagine why i picked this of course because of the the sort of similarity to mistborn here on top of that, the beer is double IPA with Simcoe, Centennial, Cascade, and Columbus hops. I haven't tried this one yet, so All right. I'll just give it a rip real quick. I just got that on my phone. That'll be fine. Oh my god, is that good. Wow, holy shit. So, super, super duper tasty, flavorful, warm, tropical notes. I'd say even like a hint of pineapple, like just in a, a small, subtle way. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Yum. So I've got... Liquid strata crystals open right now. It's fine. Nothing crazy. Nothing bad. A little bit more bitter than what I'm looking for. A little bit less less flavorful in general. Falls a little bit flat in that respect, but it's good. Other than my minor complaints, so yeah, yeah, not a whole lot okay. to say there. Cool, sweet. Well, with that, we are going to move into the episode. Generally, we'd move into predictions, but because of the crazy week, I still haven't had time to collapse them. I will collapse them all, though, for our fifth episode that we're doing inside of the series, and we will get to every single gosh darn one of them. You know? All the ones I'm right. All the gosh darn ones. Obviously, we will address the ones that we are immediately aware of in terms of predictions, because there are a couple in here that we definitely get some answers to. But, yeah. We're going to we're going to talk through that. So 
while we get this rolling, we start entering part two, Rebels Beneath a Sky of Ash. We start off chapter nine with our usual, a little journal entry here. And the first one is very short. I'll read it here. In the end, I worry that my arrogance shall destroy us all. Fairly vague. Yeah, but I'd say any, so. Any thoughts here? I, I think going forward, we'll get more and more off of this person. But for now, at this moment, I, I have thoughts later and I'll address, address them as these journal entries hit. But at this time, like reading this for the first time, still no idea. Right. Right. The immediate impact of this one is like, okay, so you think you're a fuck up. <laughs> like you believe that you yourself are are fucking up in some way shape or form and uh, that's got an interesting thing but of course you know i don't i don't expect a whole lot out of this one but the other ones this sort of adds a little bit of flavor and back text even what we've been talking about week over week so we'll definitely Mm -hmm. have to discuss the implications therein once we kind of get to the point where you felt like you broke and when you realized what you think you realized i think that's the next one that we'll talk about i think that's into chapter 10 Cool. So we'll uh, we'll talk about the implications here for sure by the end of the episode, but we'll, you know, it's it's an interesting little bit. Yeah. So we, we cut to this really fantastic training scene that follows us between Vin and Kelsier, and it's really spectacular. It shows her growth from one and gives us a vague idea that time has passed between kind of the different parts here that we see. What did you think of our little training duel that we've seen between the two? So more than anything, I felt like it was fun to see the combat between the two Mistborns, as opposed to that sort of one-sided fight that we saw Kelsier like facing off against all the guards. But seeing projectiles getting like swatted away and chasing each other around, like this becomes essentially just a chase scene, which was sweet at the same time. But it was a really satisfying experience to read because it was it was so much more than just a one-sided fight from a foe that you can't really do anything about you know right there was there was none of that imbalance of which was definitely present in the uh, raid on the venture keep and that kind of presents itself in this very interesting way especially as we move into this this kind of new section and showing how complex mistborn combat can really be as opposed to the very you know, I, I think you said it great the one-sided nature of the the previous you know arrangement it's it's fairly fairly great yeah so after that moment of combat those crazy kind of interactions that happen between the two learning each other's tricks and and kind of experiencing those different things i i particularly love this is the moment in which vin drops the coin bag and tricks kelsier right and he brings that up later as his as he thought that he was being trailed and like borrowed that trick which shows that vin has this like natural predilection to sort of the way that mistborns think already which is Mm -hmm. fantastic yeah she's tricky she's really (laughs) tricky (laughs) yeah like she has a lot of instinct and has picked up on like her, her entire life as far as we know has been running and hiding and taking on jobs for thieves crews and growing up in that sort of circumstance and getting as far as she has you're gonna have to pick up on like Little things like that constantly. So we, we get a lot of flavor from Vin throughout a lot of this 
section, but here especially. This just reminded me of this for whatever reason, but there's an old quote from the Farscape TV show that says, I'm just going on gut instinct, and one of the leads says that, and that is, it almost feels like that's the definition at this point of, of Vin's interaction with her abilities and kind of the way that she's pursued a lot of different things. She's jaded by her trauma, but on top of that, she's learned a lot from what's happened to her and what's what's been kind of visited upon her. And it's fantastic to get that perspective on, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of, what would you say, like translations between skills almost? Like she's been able to translate a lot of her thieving identity into being a Mistborn at right. this point. Yeah. And into acting the part of playing... Lady Renu a little bit later as well, which we'll definitely talk about. That one is definitely a lot more labored as far as remembering to do things, but... Yeah, she's definitely having a tougher time doing that than she is playing the part of a Mistborn, but it's it's definitely still interesting. We return to mention Renu and meet back up with Sazed as well as Kosan and begin to shape Vin's hair to prepare her for what's to come later. But during that process, Sazed also talks about religion and recommends one specifically for her. What do you make of the religion that she recommended, that of the Thousand Stars, and also the depth of knowledge that Sazed possesses as this Terrace Keeper? As far as I know, this religion isn't actually rooted in anything in our world, but I would absolutely believe that it was. If you, like, if you were to tell me that this was some ancient religion on Earth, I'd absolutely believe it. Like That, I think, speaks to the depth of, not the depth, but the, the care that's taken in writing these sort of background things it seems to be done really elegantly i'm not saying that he's taking from a religion but he's taking from religious conceits right and this idea that the the thousand eyes are better than the one sun and in that sort of conversation that happens is a fascinating one and you can really understand why they would be grounded in sort of a in a very real way in the way that you know humans religion is often a tool through which humanity has tried to understand reality and beliefs and things of that nature. And so this feels like trying to understand the reality of the red sun versus thousands, the thousand stars in the sky and kind of get understand that like the brother of the thousand stars is, is better and brighter than the one kind of egotistical sun. It's, it's just so interesting, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, mm, it's such a good little conversation here. What about says it as keeper? I, I was going to say, like, as far as the rest of the religion goes, how topical it is to the idea of questioning the big one, questioning the one, the one ruler, like, versus all the other voices in the equation. I'm sure there are more elegant ways to articulate that, but I don't have that off the top of my head. So I'm just going to continue stumbling and go right into says it as a keeper. And as far mm-hmm. as my thoughts go i'm i'm mostly curious about the method that he talks about for like memorizing things okay like i can't remember the exact quote like he has his ways or he has his techniques or something like that i think techniques might have been like we we know from later contexts that he'd be a formidable adversary i it doesn't really go into whether or not he'd be a good fighter or anything like that but we we know like People would, hmm, how do I describe this? I think Kelsier explicitly says something along the lines of you wouldn't want to like cross him because of his like status as a keeper. And it's, that's vague as to why. And I'm just, I'm curious, man. I'm excited to learn more about it. 
You know, what's super interesting is we're talking about this right now. And as I mentioned before, this is really my second and third and fourth pass through the series. So something while we're just talking about this just clicked in my head. That is a massive thing. And I can't talk, which is wild. But it just like clicked and I was like, holy shit. And I had a revelatory moment and I can't talk about it. But I want to let you know that that is the way that this book series works. All right. (laughs) oh god <laughs> fuck okay so <laughs> y- you know you you make a great point about the the power of of says as a keeper and and kind of the idea of of these different techniques and sort of the depth to which he exists is it a hive mind thing well it, it appears to be right it gives off that appearance of a hive mind thing yeah right like right. there's definitely that that is a potential for this to exist that way because mm-hmm. he, he does give context that there are many keepers or that there are at least a couple and that the lord ruler despises them a little bit later we get kind of that context and so the idea of a keeper is a very interesting one and it brings about like another kind of you know fantasy progression here for the story which is really interesting and unique i realized that i derailed my own very complex question <laughs> because i had a moment and that was weird but we're gonna move on <laughs> After admiring the haircut, we cut over to a conversation between Sazed and Kelsier discussing whether or not they believe her to be ready for her test at a ball among the noblemen, as well as her innate elementic skill, while perhaps leaning on the other mystings to train in their specific disciplines because Kelsier does not have enough time to do so himself. I'm pretty sure this explicitly is a prediction that the training yes. would be delegated to specified or uh, specialized members of the crew. Yeah, you definitely predicted this. You said this actually, which is why I was like, "Oh my god, you're right, but you're also a little bit wrong. Like you're like you didn't give enough credit to Kelsier and what he was going to try to do, but you were right in the way that this was obviously going to roll out <laughs> and literally the next chapter focuses on one of these one of these elements. So, cheers. I'll drink to that. Cheers. Are you getting it right? Typically, this would be on the front end of the episode, but drinking in the middle, it's great. Honestly, if we got really good at tracking these, drinking in the middle of the episode might be more fun. Playing in this drinking I, game. I, I agree. I think it would be. Yeah, we, we just have to figure out exactly how to do that, and we can, we can make that work. But yeah, it, it it comes true here, and it's a very it's a very interesting, satisfying moment, right? Where it's like, oh, we we believe in her, how, and she has this innate ability, and it has this she can she can do all these things, but. I can't teach them all to her. And says it, of course, leans into that idea of, of everyone else giving her little bits and pieces here. Beyond this being a prediction, did you have any other thoughts or feelings? Oh, <laughs> I did have one thought. I thought it was really kind of odd that this thought never even, like, that idea never even crossed Kelsier's mind. And I don't know if, if that says something about his, if he's just distracted or if he feels like he should be the one to entirely take this new Mistborn under his wing and teach her the ways or like what it, what it could be. Like if that's how he was taught, so that's the way it should be taught because he has his, his teacher that he refers to. And I can't remember his name at this point, but i I just found it that that thought never crossed his mind. Like you have all these high level specialized mistings, why not utilize them for training? It's uh it's definitely a an interesting thought. And I guess maybe that's because he himself is fairly inexperienced. Doesn't he say something along the lines of like he's only had the powers for uh, a couple of years, maybe at most? Yeah. Um, I mean he was in the he was in the pits of Hassin like 
few years ago. Yeah. Gemmel is the name, by the way. Gemmel. Yeah. Which we don't know anything about Gemmel, right? No. Yeah. We, we get no information outside the fact that he trained him in the pits of Hatson, in theory. It is interesting. And I think that this really speaks to kind of Kelsier's own na- naivete. He does have this perception of feeling like he knows everything. And I think it's because we, we kind of swap between perspectives of Vin and Kelsier. We also don't get like how shaky Kelsier is because he's kind of new to this. And we, we get a little bit of this information, interestingly enough, from Marsh, where it's like, you're not like this generally. So like your weight here is a little bit different. But So maybe less naivete and more arrogance. Mm-hmm. That's better. Arrogance is right. That's definitely fits in, especially with the uh, the quote at the top of the chapter that like double fits. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. With that, we go into chapter 10. We lead off, of course, with another journal entry here. I'll read it off here. It amazes me how many nations have united behind our purpose. There are still dissenters, of course, and some kingdoms, regrettably, have fallen to wars that I could not stop. Still, this general unity is glorious, even humbling to contemplate. I wish that the nations of mankind hadn't required such a dire threat to make them see the value of peace and cooperation. There's seemingly like a lot of context tucked into this one. What do you think? So th- this is where like something clicked with you before and yep. it's going to be hilarious if I'm entirely wrong because I'm just going to go off on this like for the rest of the until there's something else that tells me that I'm dead wrong. I'm going to run with this. This is the journal of the Lord Ruler. Okay. And it was written in the past. I don't believe we know of any other nations at this point in the story. If there were other nations in existence, I feel like that would come into play as far as the resistance goes. Mm-hmm. There's a dire threat unifying them, and I'm pretty sure that's the deepness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so. in general, to, to kind of speak to your point, it is referred to as the final empire, right? Like, the world itself that we find ourselves in in the modern day is referred to as the final empire. Yep. So that feels like it fits. The only other nation we've even been vaguely introduced to is Terrace as a thing. I, that's I saw that less as a nation and more as like a cultural body but sure yeah and that also makes sense like that is also the context so it's because mm. they're referred to as the terrorist people the keeper the vots at one point is another term yeah cool so you think it's the lord ruler journal of I'm, the lord ruler i'm absolutely going to continue with that train of thought for the foreseeable future I'm curious. Have you gone back and reread? I have not earlier journal entries. All right, but I want to. I'm curious. I'm curious what you'd think rereading those with that lens, uh, what that would lend you. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's something we'll address next week. Now that you've kind yeah. of had this thought, I realized when I was editing this week's episode that I got really good at muting myself in Discord each time I had to cough, so that you didn't hear it. But I didn't mute the mic, so it didn't fucking matter because I still had to edit <laughs> it out. It's like you didn't hear me cough, but. <laughs> the recording still did so it didn't fucking matter and i had to edit all of those out it was awful funny like, it is it was hysterical and awful that's <laughs> it's, really it's funny how i felt i was like oh this is punishment for being dumb got it all right my bad all right with that we cut to <laughs> we cut to vin back in luthadel walking down the ashen streets under the impressive red sun i like this as this little this little environmental reminder here kind of at the beginning of the chapter she's here to receive her training from breeze on the art of soothing which starts with a little nugget about the importance of understanding emotions and when to soothe and when to just maybe play into ego a little bit and and kind of other elements of personality what do you think of this i really like breeze he's such an interesting character breeze is so cool so interesting right 
but he he maintains this high level of confidence even without the use of his suit he feels like a nobleman you know what i mean he does he does kind of lord over people to a little to to a certain extent which is i mean to a certain point he he straddles sort of a line of morality yeah right right commanding personality line of morality that all fits like the the wine right at the beginning here and the fact that He's so cavalier about like I could be I could be using my allomancy on you. Who knows? Either way, give me some goddamn wine. <laughs> He's such a dick about it sometimes, but it, like, but in in a way that's okay, I guess. Like, he's absolutely an asshole, but I don't mind it. Right, right. He's not actually. He's not. It's one of those odd things in in like comedy and humor, right? Where he's he is like. A dick, but he isn't really like punching down in a serious way. Like he's not actually demeaning or like making people diminutive. It's more of um, it's more in jest, and it's well executed. the The point with this one that's less in jest is that like he's drinking their stores of wine that they definitely can't afford, and it's just like, oh, Kelsey or pay him back later. Mm, that feels more like a, a sort of blow off. This actually specifically reminds me of uh, Doc from Firefly in an odd way okay. where like Doc would occasionally do things and be like, Mal, will take care of it and, and be like, you know, like I am. I'm the old guard. I'm one of I'm one of those guys. He knows what I need. And it just reminds me. It's Doc, right? Doc, Rocco, the religious guy. Booker is, it, is Booker. That's it. Holy shit. I haven't watched Firefly in a long time. It's totally Booker. Okay. But yeah. So Booker, same point though. Okay. Yeah. We're like, Booker's like, yeah, I mean, we're old friends. He'll take care of it. He knows what what's needed, what's necessary. It gives me more of that sort of mental. Gotcha. Thought. Okay. Yeah. Obviously we get a lot of breeze here, but we also get ham who mm-hmm. is here as well. And he asks, of course, as our philosophy guy, he asks a great philosophical question. Is overturning the final empire ultimately a good thing or a bad thing? And we love Ham. We love Ham because he facilitates my part of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, there there is one sort of issue with this entire thought experiment, though. Sure. And it is going on the supposition that the Lord Ruler is God, or at, at the very least is enough a part of god to def- to be able to define morality i don't think i buy that and i don't think a lot of them buy that either you're making a very nietzschean point right now which is to say that like god is dead and even though like we, no. we even are perceiving no what i'm saying is like god is dead because you we are being fed the information that this is god but we do not have an understanding okay. we we cannot perceive what god is and we can perceive this man and we can perceive what he's capable of, capable of and therefore he cannot be god because god is imperceptible yeah so i'm all, all it, i'm saying it, is you're it, making it, a nietzschean argument which i agree with so, sort of but more so i'm making the argument that his entire point is contingent on the on them believing the lord ruler and yeah. just uh, accepting that he's god yeah, it it also has this element of of kind of like double think to it from 1984, right? Like it's got this element of like because the the foundation of your belief prevents you from seeing further than your nose effectively. And 
that is kind of Ham's problem is that he does have this assumption of God. And that's what also like Vin tries to kind of debunk actively with like kind of her, her joking shrug offish way. Mm-hmm. And Breeze likes it and kind of laughs at it. But I think it's I think it's serious. And I think that she's not entirely wrong. She's also at the same time grappling with her own beliefs and right. trying to kind of get an understanding there. So it's it's an interesting quandary to be stuck in the middle of. Yeah, that's fair. Definitely. But I disagree with Ham entirely. So, yeah, I mean, Ham is just there to make arguments, dude. Like, that's, that's kind of a fun fine. part of his character. <laughs> that's fair. It is fun. You know, like it's it, it, regardless of whether you agree or disagree, he is just there to have the conversation. Like, mm-hmm. and that's he'd love to play chess and move the pieces around, even if it doesn't mean anything in the end. Yeah. We also get an interesting detail here as well regarding both soothing and rioting, that they're actually very similar, of which you also stated, of which I will take a drink for in a second, except at the extremes of emotion. I, I think that this is a very interesting distinction, all things considered, in the same way that iron pushing and pulling are very close together, but are distinctly different. Soothing and rioting are almost identical with a couple of exceptions. Yeah, so the way it was kind of described, and it really made a lot of sense to me, was the uh, sort of idea that I, I was kind of thinking it, thinking of it like like colors, like pigments. Oh, really? You were thinking about colors? I was. And you're going to try to explain colors to the colorblind guy? <laughs> I am. Okay. Just want to just want to make sure you you understand sort of the principles of how colors work, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, yes, I yes, yes. Yes, yes. And just sort of the idea of emotions being a mix of a bunch of different core emotions and being able to sort of play with the side sliding scales. You can achieve very similar results by just increasing a bunch and leaves, leaving some the same or decreasing a bunch and leaving the other ones the same. It's not going to be perfect or identical, but it, it can be pretty close the way I was thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, right. Everything is very similar until the poles, until you hit kind of the poles. And that's where it becomes a very different, different thing, because yeah. often emotions are in the middle, which I, I think that's a great distinction. Right. But then, of course, we see soothing at work, right? Like, what what did you make of this operation that Breeze is obviously executing with his soothers and the signals to them in turn? The scene is just so fascinating. I, I love it. It is. I'm going to make more comparisons. This this felt like Breeze <laughs> was sort of a conductor, an orchestra of yeah. emotions. It was so like centralized and just I I don't know. I That's I was a- imagining him like sitting in this like room obscured from view, sort of moving his hands up and down and. No, he wasn't, but that's how I imagined it. That's actually a really good read. I, I really like the idea of him being a conductor of emotions because it, it's very clear that he doesn't need to say out loud what he's doing, but he's doing that for the benefit of Vin, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he could execute this all silently. There's no actual somatic component, as any D&D nerd would say, but it, it, it gives off this sort of i think conductor is a perfect word he's he's in charge of this whole thing he's he's got it on an operating line and he knows exactly how to manipulate emotions reminds me of the way that a movie score manipulates your emotions generally like most movie scores are designed to manipulate your emotions as whatever's happening on screen Mm -hmm. changes and adjusts and that is exactly what's going on here yeah definitely but without music which we're, we're getting through color perception of feeling to execute and like these color signals going across the crowd and, and that being really kind of the 
the work of of the soothers so yeah it's good so how how were the different that's the one thing that i was a little bit confused on and it like i i was listening to this a bunch of times um, but inevitably i'd have to like re-listen to it because i'd be like working and getting distracted so i might have just missed something entirely but what was the point of the different colored servers that were walking around so the different colors when they walked out were signals to the other soothers to push a certain ah okay so it is literally like conducting in that way yeah i was i was i was thinking it was the other way around for some reason like they were walking out as a signal to him but that didn't make Mm. much sense to me i was yeah i mean it was it was a signal to him to change but they were directed by the general pacing that they had set up so consider it's it's all a paced it's a paced movement it's it's a plan it's a dance of sorts as breeze might even recommend Mm-hmm. it's great i i love this scene as a representation of what what a soothing is really capable of it's so fantastic because a lot of times magic systems occasionally like hard magic systems like this can spend a lot of time explaining and showing a thing but like you know the showing feels false when you like come to try to understand it like it feels like okay this information is being thrown down my throat because i need to know it i need to know it for something that's coming up this tutorial natural and yeah exactly it feels like a tutorial this feels natural and proper and and like really wrapped in story and character Mm -hmm. it's great of course in the middle of this kind of orchestra that we've been talking about of emotion kelsier is using this meeting in part to drum up his own legend and create this symbol and rallying cry to gather around, being that he is this survivor of the pits of Hathsin. It's both affecting as well as effective, but not to the degree the group really needs to be in order to continue recruitment at the level that they need to mean to hit the number that they're expecting. Yeah, I mean, there's a balance going on here that is absolutely working against him in that he can't really say a whole lot and. Vin points this out, I think, almost almost explicitly the same way I'm going to, like, almost verbatim. But he can't say anything that's going to cause anyone to, like, that can be used as fuel to rat on him. Right. And because of that, he can't really give the, the juicy bits that are going to persuade people to join him. So he's, he's effectively handcuffed himself. And as a result, he gets, like, what, 20, 20 members or something like that? Or was it, like, five? I feel like it was 20. I feel like that's right. They they said that they've been getting like a little over a dozen or two each meeting. And it's a lower number than they want. Mm-hmm. And increasing the total volume of meetings isn't necessarily going to increase the recruits because they also pose risks to themselves. So there, there's an interesting quandary that kind of takes goes time on. to set up the meetings. Right. And they only like they can only do so much vetting. And this could become a thing that would alert obligators and likewise to to their presence so it's mm-hmm. they're at a tough tough balance point to to your point it doesn't feel like they can push much harder based on what we kind of get from feedback a little bit later mm-hmm. so kelsier monologues for a moment about atm we get more on the actual effects of this metal later but more now kind of on the economics of the whole thing where do you suppose the atm goes i'm going to flag this as a prediction yep as you should. I don't think there's a stockpile of ATM anywhere because I think the Lord Ruler uses it because we, we learn later on what ATM does. But what we haven't seen are huge amounts of a specific metal 
in use. And I'm curious if there's like, if you could use a ton of it all at once, if it would give you almost like divining powers, even more so. So I think the Lord Ruler uses Atium in fucking giant quantities as a means of maintaining power and sort of knowing the happenings of the entire realm ahead of time. Okay. That's actually, that's an intuitive proposition based on what we know from ATM a little bit later. Do you have any other, any other thoughts there? I mean, I I think the reason behind it, other than maintaining a stronghold is sort of the feigning of godhood, like the ability to perform miracles to anybody who gets close enough to potentially like need something more in order to stay a believer. I don't know. I don't know all the specifics yet. I'm toying with Mm -hmm. this idea, but my thought is ATM is used as a tool to feign godhood for the Lord Ruler. Sure. I dig that as a concept. And it's so interesting that you use the word feign because you are already lending yourself to not believe that the Lord Ruler is in fact a god. I absolutely don't believe the Lord Ruler is a god. Interesting. Interesting. What do you think he is, if not a god? If not a god, what is he? You, You did, in the first chapter... In, in the first section and in the third section, you kind of reaffirmed your idea that like he was insurmountable and kind of stuff like that. In the second, you questioned it a lot, but I'm interested to hear. More. I don't know. I, to anybody that's new, hi, my name's PJ. I make predictions and I forget. Um, <laughs> my my thoughts and my feelings on things are entirely based on like my immediately my my immediate feeling, like my whatever's mm-hmm. surrounding me. So. I will absolutely make, I think this happened more than a few times in Red Rising. I would make wild predictions that came true and completely forget that I ever made that prediction and be surprised by it being true. <laughs> yeah, there there were a couple of times that that happened. So it's it's so, it, it's a fascinating process, but it's it's interesting to see kind of your like almost dichotomous approach to yeah. this I do, character. I do remember having doubts about the godhood aspect of it right but i don't i don't know if that thought ever really manifested in anything tangible at any point i'm sure i went i'm sure i flip-flopped a couple times yeah i was gonna say it's more flippy floppy not solid are you are you suggesting that you're placing a a spike in the ground i'm staking a flag all right the lord ruler is not a god Mm -hmm. okay all right Yep. Neato. That's going to be a fun little prediction to have for a while. He also mentions that the name Critic Shaw is a terrace name. That for the th- the Hill of a Thousand Spires. But beyond that, he also speaks with Sazed about the Lord Ruler's seeming fear of the Keepers. What did you gather from this kind of interesting conversation that happens between the two? So, I think part of it is the extensive knowledge on religions. Like, topically to this section... The knowledge on religions could be used as a like, a source of, I, I keep wanting to say disinformation because of us watching Chernobyl, but that's not like the right term. Uh, but the, the source of dissenting opinions, I guess, of truth. Okay. Hmm. The source of anti-Lord Ruler propaganda. Does that, does that work? Yes. Yep. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So topically to this section i think that's what's going on but in general he fears the terrorismen for some reason we there's so much we don't know there's so much we don't know about the keepers and i want to know more 
because I'm I'm positive that I'm missing like a huge puzzle piece here to really understand what's going on. <laughs> Isn't that so interesting about the difference here between authors that we've read before? It feels like we're, we have deliberate puzzle pieces missing and we're just waiting for it to like click in place in its own. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. That's true. Between between Crouch, between even Chuck Wendig in, in the short story that we read and Pierce Brown, like all this, this is a distinct style. It's it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. It's ripe for predictions, but almost it is. It's, there's almost too much of a void and it's hard to make. A, like, I'm just shouting into nothingness, trying to like make connections that are way too far apart to, to be made. Sure. As far as you feel them. Right. That's right. Sort of the reality. Yeah. I also, every time I see critic Shaw, it's, it's KS, right? Those are my fucking initials. It's K Shaw. Yeah. K Shaw even, which is worse. K R Shaw. We, we had this conversation before. We had almost exactly this conversation before. I can't remember who was it. in the, in the show. Every time, like I, we we talked about the kind of villainhood that's around the, the Shaw name in general, and it's it it is just reaffirms it every time I read it that the family name is fucked. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we end this chapter with a brief catch up about where the crew is with planning their various portions of the heist before Kelsier is informed of an incident at Cayman's lair. What did you think of the uh, status update that we get from these folks? I think my favorite point was the stifled. Are you insane from Yedin? Yedin. <laughs> yeah. Yedin. Yedin. Yeah. Yedin. Um, all in all though in general i really like the dynamic of the crew i'm excited to get to know more of them better but there are some big personalities and some fun quirks between a few of the members and it's exciting good dynamic cool i totally agree i don't have wild opinions on this it's it's just so it's so fun to kind of like see them re like regroup basically after like kind of seeing the way that they broke apart on the blackboard and then seeing them come back together and be like, well, we are behind on troop recruitment. This isn't quite working out. This isn't quite working out. We don't quite have the weapons. We don't have, you know, we're, we're missing components here. And of course, all of this ends up being kind of sublimated by what goes on in Cayman's Lair. Mm. Sublimated. Did I use that word correctly? I have no idea. Divert. Yeah, I did. Fuck yeah. All right. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Chapter 11. Our prophecy for this chapter reads, It seems Rashek represents a growing faction in terrorist culture. A large number of youths think their unusual powers should be used for more than fieldwork, husbandry, and stone carving. They're rowdy, even violent, far different from the quiet, discerning terrorist philosophers and holy men that I have known. They will have to be watched carefully, these terrorist men. They could be very dangerous if given the opportunity and motivation. So this kind of sets an interesting painting of the terrorist people so far as we understand them previously, as as we kind of get our understanding from Seizid and the Keepers, and the pictures of the, the journal kind of seem to clash directly against each other. What did you, what do you think about this? So I think this is one of the, one of the first, the first one that I noticed, at least, that this is definitely written in the past before what we're dealing with now, for sure. Okay. Because of the way these these terrorist men don't have any sort of like it seems they don't have a grasp on what their powers can do, whatever those powers are. Okay. And it seems like in the present day, in the story, they are full aware of it and 
people around them are full aware of it. And also, they're hunted. So it's not like they have like just open congregations of them. So I don't know. It just feels like the precursor to what we know Terrasmen to be so far. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not, and and I think precursor is an interesting thing to key in here, right? So now we're starting to place the assumption that this journal happens beforehand. It's a journal of the Lord Ruler, kind of like you've made assumptions there, right. and that leads us to an interesting place of like, why have these people been hunted? Why have they been removed? Why does the Lord Ruler see them as a threat? What are these and, powers that they have? Yeah, right, right. It's it's like, interesting for sure. They're used for stone carving. What? That seems difficult to do. I don't know. Right. It, it doesn't seem like it's easy. I don't know about you. I've never <laughs> carved a stone. I have. It was a very small stone, and it was just kind of like scraping scraping shit into it. Not the same. I mean, it, it seems as though there's definitely some removed information here. Yeah, definitely. From there, we find ourselves back in Cayman's Lair, as we kind of talked about in the previous chapter, but... It is an absolutely brutal scene with people of Mylev's crew rendered into bits, bones, and blood. It's a dark, stark moment inside of this chapter, and one that Kelsier intuits had been done by a steel inquisitor, of which there are noted to only be 20 inside of the final empire. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. This is absurd, though. It is a horrifying amount of carnage described here. Like... <laughs> Yeah, it is. Do you, this is a strange abject spoiler that's kind of distantly connected. But do you remember the carnage as it was explained in Daniel Green's Breach Peace? Yes. This is reminiscent, I think. Like my brain thinks that these scenes are similar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I I think I agree. Anyway, I, I it, that was just like my first impression was like this reminded me of that. In, so are you saying in that the context. Steel Inquisitor is I am not further suggesting <laughs> any other connection to Breach of Peace. I am just <laughs> intuiting the sort of violence that we see, the display that's that's kind of here. But still, the Steel Inquisitor and the carnage everywhere. Yeah, it's horrifying. So much blood. So much blood. I mean, the blood, the bones, the limbs kind of flayed everywhere and, and split against the walls. Like, this is a grotesque what, scene to walk What does she talk about? Like, I think she uses the term thorough. Yeah. At, yeah. At, at least one point. <laughs> and that feels like a very clinical analysis from, from Finn's part of, like, trying to mm-hmm. not internalize so much of this. Because she does ultimately, like, recognize Ulef and, and other components, components that are strewn across the room. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm specifically using that word because that's kind of the way that this scene is described. It's it's awful. It's horrifying. It's it's bloody. It's egregious. Bits. It's yeah, bits. Ugh. It's not it's not violence for violence sake, but it's enough of a shock to make us realize how terrifying a Steel Inquisitor might be. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Are you afraid of them now? Not not necessarily yet. Because Okay. We don't technically know for sure that this was just one Steel Inquisitor, right? Well, we don't Vin, Vin is adamant that it had to be more people i know i know that's the point that he, that uh, right. we're trying to yeah, make that, like that is yes this that is, is the literally the sublimated point right i know that is i know i'm just gotta be i gotta play Vin's side too you gotta play the contrary in a little bit which is yeah. also Vin in this circumstance so i feel that i feel that Mm-hmm. We, we of course, kind of leave this moment of, of sort of the bloody brutality. We, we live in it for a little bit longer, I should say. And Sazed brings up a religious right to help ease these souls into the afterlife. And I find 
this moment that he has with Vin in the scene where he says that his his like faith in every religion is almost kind of like a comforting warm blanket about the truth of human existence in its own way. These, this idea that beliefs are contradictory at their, at their basis and they have these biases naturally kind of built in, but that they are all, they all kind of compose, they're all composed of like grand theories and assumptions. And his kind of acknowledgement of that, I think is so critical to the idea of why people put themselves and believe in religions. And and this is just such a unique moment in so many stories that it feels important to remark upon. Yeah. It's, it's a really unique perspective and it's hard to tell. Like he doesn't believe in all of the religions. It's like right. his religion is the religion of people and what, what yeah. gives them comfort and what gives them closure and any, anything like that, regardless of if it's true, it's just finding circumstances and finding related passages from whatever religion that could ease those or ease those tensions or thoughts or cir- whatever the circumstances are. I, I have this interesting conundrum that I think about a little bit with Sazed's perspective here, and it's that I always have this slight feeling he almost aligns more with philosophies than religions Mm -hmm. like he's almost playing into it more as like a philosophy but obviously it's a belief system that's driven by gods and other things but it feels i got the vibe that so close to philosophy i got the vibe that was entirely philosophy and he was just borrowing whatever relevant passages from past religions sure yeah yeah but he's so strict about the idea that he believes in them all and that like he yeah. understands a god's application and that makes makes for this interesting kind of crosstalk between religion and philosophy because they are connected they always have been fundamentally and it's only recently recently nietzsche basically being when that sort of postmodern philosophical debate started to enter the conversation were really fully separated from religion but it's it's interesting mm-hmm. nonetheless yeah yeah it's an interesting it's kind of a i don't know i i really enjoy Sazed's perspective here yep. me too my lev of course bears the worst of the brunt here he was slowly tortured made to maybe give away information on the crew themselves being that the inquisitor still had vince sent from her first meeting with the obligator as it appears we don't actually know that but that's that is the situation that everyone assumes we found ourselves in yeah it's fucking brutal first of yeah. all not not even the brutalist of what we'll see later in the chapter but huh. i'm really curious on what vin's actually thinking here because i could see it completely going and and she kind of shows aspects of apathy of remorse of guilt of I don't know. There's there's a lot of different feelings. I feel like, and she does she does a really good job of not really showing any of them, but just her inner monologue at, at certain points is like, all right, so she cared about them, but she didn't care about them, and she's not acting like she's not reacting in a horrified way. Like she's she's a tough one to crack, man. Mm-hmm. She is interesting, tough difficult you can put any number of phrases on it she is rock solid in in the way that she has been traumatized right like she is almost impossible to pick through yeah basically like what what do you even what do you even do what do you assume what do you try to she's the toughest nugget to crack 
in, inside of this whole story, which is also it makes her a fantastic character because she has these traumatic experiences. She has this sort of orphan legacy throughout the story and makes for an interesting character. Mm-hmm. So from this moment, of course, that we find kind of the brutalization happening, Kelsier comes to this realization, seemingly kind of keeping it from us. But he splits from the group who, for the rest of them, they head back to hide at Clubs' lair while he goes off and searches for Cayman. We arrive with Vin surprising Kelsier at a shocking scene of the man's disturbing murder. Perhaps, seriously, one of the m- most gruesome deaths I've ever read in fiction. Hmm. I don't know about that, but it's pretty fucking, pretty fucking bad. (laughs) I mean, the hook goes through his mouth and through his throat. Like that is. Yeah, but it's okay. It's not described in the most horrifying way, you know? No, no. And I would say if anything like Pierce or not Pierce, excuse me. (laughs) Sanderson is a little bit light on uh, metaphor and details and things like this, mostly because he doesn't want to kind of make a point of it, but just the sort of simplicity of describing it in this very like base way is also a great way of just making you like have to sit with it, which is bad. I don't know about that hmm. because it, it, it gives you the opportunity to completely like gloss over it. If you want to, you're not, you don't have to pour through it and really get the nitty gritty details of what's going on. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's definitely what he's aiming for in this entire chapter of brutality is like it's it's not meant to like shove it in your face to to quote an author of whom I've worked with a couple of times. Being transgressive is really easy, like being transgressive in fiction and writing and things like that. It's a very easy way shortcut to to getting you to kind of base your emotions in people. But it doesn't it doesn't lead to serious residual feelings, if that makes sense. It doesn't like make you feel invested in a real way. And I I think I agree with that in the most part. I think that this is, it gets the point across without being too much. Yeah. See that. Especially as it's specified as this sort of like ritual killing. Yeah. Yeah. I did like the description of hanged in not the ordinary fashion. I can't remember the exact term. (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure that's what it is because it's, it's, it's the hook that goes into his mouth and then up through his back, like up through his throat, like a fishing hook would. Yeah. And that alone is enough to like think about the way that that would position a person, right? Like he isn't, he isn't describing what that would lend itself positioning wise, but he's leaving enough there for you to sit and linger in it and be like, oh, that means he's kind of like, he's hooked. He's sitting there. It, it reminds me of some of the depictions of. Yeah, right. I also thought of the Mitch Hedberg <laughs> joke, uh, but I, I also like I also get the depictions of like Bioshock in, in certain contexts where like people are hung kind of in, in grotesque yeah. ways and kind of made examples of by other splicers instead of that story. And it reminded me of that in kind of a big, big way. Yeah. Yeah, I can get behind that. We also see kind of the the differing perception of beggars throughout this section and that also is kind of painful to bear and paints a larger picture of the ska as a whole again and kind of gets back to the grounding of of world building here and he's looking for cayman of course because he's among those beggars but so that's one thing i was kind of curious about he was essentially forced into becoming a beggar by design like he was told go go become a beggar over here What's stopping him from, I don't know, tapping some of his old contacts or anything? Or or does he not have any? And it, it seemed odd to me that Kelsier forced him into begging in this specific location and had any way of enforcing it, you know? Well, that was the, like, ham checkups, right? Like, the 
there was a little bit of a note dropped that like other people had checked in on him. Yeah. Uh, okay. Inside of the kind of muffled conversation that was happening in the other room that Vin was trying to listen in on. So he was being checked in on to ensure that he was kind of put in place, which is also its own interesting torture. Also worth noting, Cayman is a piece of shit and also deserves this death in its own way, but it's also brutal and yeah, he deserves death. He didn't deserve this death. You can't say that. Yeah. Well, right. It's <laughs> we don't know that. You may have. It's impossible. You may have deserved it's impossible. worse. Right. It's true. It's impossible to mediate specifically on what he deserved. But this feels simultaneously for Vin, like she feels like this is just desserts in its own way, but also is kind of like afraid of the consequences. It's it's a tough thing to parse. Yeah, it is. With that, let's move into chapter 12. So we start off, of course, again, with a little journal entry here. What would it be like if every nation from the Isles in the south to the Terrace Hills in the north were united under a single government? What wonders could be achieved? What progress could be made if mankind were to permanently set aside squabbling and join together? Is it too much, I suppose, to even hope for? A single unified empire of man? It could never happen. There's no way that you escape this without having an opinion on it. I mean, my first thought was, okay, Napoleon. But, <laughs> but I mean, of course this is the Lord rule. Right. And I don't think, I, I can't see any sort of progress being made in this world. It, things seem pretty regressive. <laughs> so. I mean, you're right. I don't know. It's maybe, just painful. Maybe it was too much to hope for for a good reason i don't know yeah yeah and i think that's something that we might see unfurl you know every time Mm -hmm. these these sections continue to be something that i cannot talk about but like want your musings on if that makes sense yeah it does yeah all right and i'll talk about them as much as i can but you know i don't want to either we kind of have discussed this during the previous series, but my goal is not to mislead you intentionally. It is to provide well, a sounding I'm board. Well aware of that with your current location. I know that you're aware, but maybe the listeners aren't. Okay. Yes. So, so yeah. For some context, early on in this in this show, I don't know if we ever actually even released any of those, but you would have me predict things and intentionally like drop drop fake predictions. Or not? I not did that fake a little bit in Red Rising. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you did early early on. Where it wasn't like it wasn't like you were actually misleading me intentionally, but you were just kind of letting me. I was taking extraneous details and like making them a big deal for yeah. maybe no reason. Yeah, right, exactly. So we've had a couple conversations on that, and I think because basically it got to the point where I was like thinking too hard about those details, and it was like ruining my my reading. Like, what's going to happen here? Right. And it didn't matter because they it never got addressed again. So after a couple of those happening, I think we've gotten sort of we've gotten it dialed in as far as what you pose to me, not necessarily being super important, but not intentionally being unimportant. Right, right. I would agree with that. It's it's more meant to I'm pointing at things that may illuminate and may not. And I'm not trying to I'm no longer trying to mislead you into imagining other plot directions necessarily, but mm-hmm. instead imposing a question that is more founded in the text that leaves you with an open ended area to respond to. Right. So yes. generally speaking, I'm leading you with the text as opposed to leading you without text. 
if that makes sense like exactly exactly <laughs> sometimes it's making shit up you know just to see like where your brain would spiral uh, <laughs> and it spirals and, man and it spirals holy shit um, does it spiral <laughs> a couple of times but but now it's it's more about like using the text to see where your brain spirals so yep yep yeah which i appreciate so inside of chapter 12 we cut from that initial segment into vin preparing for her very first ball having conversations about expectations with both stazid and kelsier her goal is to find people who are interested in her and nip them in her mind she's also to relay any rumors she and stazid here to kelsier this is such a cool segment it's just it's so good it's like mm-hmm. even just the conversation that happens in the carriage where like Kelsier lands on top and like jumps into the, it, it's just neat. It's a good, it's a good time. It's pretty neat. This is just great subterfuge shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, right. and that's, that's the other thing is there's nothing particularly unique about this entire section, you know, mm-hmm. it's just so well executed and it, it doesn't, become cliched at any point it doesn't become i mean there there's one point where it's i i don't know the the premise is a little bit because it, it happens because it is just generic spy shit that it's you you have to get on board with it but he brings you on board super. I don't know. That devolved into like me not really s- saying anything, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You quickly <laughs> spiraled off into not saying anything specific about anything. Yeah. Yeah, it did. But <laughs> I just felt like this was really well executed, even though it's not a, not a wholly unique premise. Yeah, this is this is again an example of of Sanderson's flawless execution on the part of kind of the heist trope at large that we kind of find here, and it's it's a refinement of a lot of those things. And it's it's not as though it's wholly new. It's we've we've experienced this kind of thing before. And again, this book was published back when we were in middle school, high school, middle school. So keeping that in mind, like. Things have changed dramatically over time, and our understanding of media and literature have changed, and I'm sure the public's perception of media and literature have changed as things like Twitter and Reddit have grown. So there's there's this interesting kind of dynamic that's being played with here that it, I'm not saying that this feels dated, but it feels of a time. Okay. That makes sense? Did that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Okay. I don't know uh, how I, I don't know how you can delineate between well, dated and of a time but i get what you're saying like some things feel pre-internet is specifically because like the the information is so limited and like characters aren't able to understand and in turn like writers can't understand the complexity that might come there as they're predicting the future like science fiction in particular this feels still like a timeless heist but taking tropes that weren't they were tropes but they weren't widely understood as tropes like the the public understanding of tropes wasn't as well defined okay if that makes sense yeah it does so the time this seemed less tropey now it feels very tropey because we've had an extra you know 14 plus years yeah that's fair actually is it isn't that old for some reason i feel like the mistborn is actually only a decade we, old i mean we graduated high school 10 years ago 
I know. I, I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying, okay, July 2006. For some reason, there there was a leather-bound tenure that was similar to the Elantris tenure. Anyway, we're good. I was not wrong. That's all that matters. That is no. all that matters. <laughs> You're right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we. <laughs> you dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then we get to the ball, right? Like, it's such a cool moment. You know, it's one of those things that I kind of, like, eye-rolled at the first the first time that I read. This kind of idea of, like, going to this ball and being, like, this regal event and everything else. I was just like, oh, this isn't my fucking thing. Like, this, mm-hmm. in a very uh, Pierre Ford honest context, I was like, my god, this does not fit my taste at all whatsoever. But then as it starts to unfurl, I'm like, okay, I'm far more interested in this than I should be. And we get this this really interesting and complex depiction of upper-class noblemen, and I think that that's kind of great on the part of the society representation. We, we from, like, the dinner to the suitors to the musings of Sazed, it's all wonderful. What do you think? So I, <laughs> I approached it with that same mindset of like, oh God, we get to like sit through this ball. But I didn't even have, I didn't ha- even have like a moment of warming up to it. For whatever reason, I was in. Like, right away, I loved it. I loved the way that it went like right away. So mm-hmm. I don't even remember how it starts specifically. I don't know what grabbed me, but for whatever reason, I was invested. I was it's, invested it's in lights. this ball. It's, it's such a strange thing, but the lights right off the bat where she's like, she can't explain why they're so bright and why they're like lining this road, this like street with like these bright lights. And she's like, why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense. It's to like glamorize the approach to the, the house. And she's not even used to the, the idea of a keep and the idea of like mm-hmm. something formal like this. And I think that's what really got me is, is how it's familiar to us, but it's so foreign to Vin that. We kind of feel hooked in, in part by our lack of understanding of exactly what a nobleman ball is, but also in Vin's utter lack of social comprehension of what this thing is that she's walking into. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I think this is also where we get the point where they describe the limestone being heated to the point where it glows but doesn't melt. Is that here or is that yes. a different point? That's that's a little bit later. I believe that Sazed specifies that when she's talking or before she's she's like looking out over the balcony or something near that is is when that comes up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think they are inside already at that point. But yes. Yeah. It sounds it sounds right. And she's peering out and he's like, I don't know why they're able to burn so brightly and specifically like why they work that way. But they do, which is interesting considering how much Sazed knows. It, it points out something that like speaks to. It speaks to the idea that maybe Sazed doesn't know everything. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I never put that together. Mm. He does he does mention I don't know why. Yes, yeah, he specifically yeah. says I don't know why. Mm. To the point it says it though. I, you know, it's it's not as though again. Never spoiling forward. Always talking about present things and trying to like bring these things up. So it's it's great that that clicked for you. And I'm I have those moments all the time inside of these novels, and. My fear is always, I don't want to click advanced knowledge for you on accident, but sometimes present knowledge I know, and I can, like, bring up and be like, well, presently, like, we know that Sazed appears to not know everything because of the context we get, so. Yeah. I mean, maybe he invented this technology and he's just, like, playing it cool. A fucking liar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either way. So, what what's also interesting about this is 
Vin ponders this giant glass depiction of the Lord Ruler and the deepness. What did you think of the depiction of the deepness and kind of her feelings surrounding this depiction of the pair? So in this moment, Vin had a lot of the same thoughts that I did, but from a different point of view, I guess. The what was it part is kind of what sticks out for me. She she seems to know all of the stories of like the deepness but still doesn't actually know what it is and is like confused about being depicted so abstractly. Whereas like I haven't heard almost anything about it and I'm still wondering like, what is this shit? But not necessarily like, why is it depicted so abstractly? But like, what is this abstract thing I'm looking at? Yeah. It's, it's especially interesting because, she is the surrogate for the audience, but she has slightly more. She's got like 10% more understanding of the world yeah. than the audience does. Yeah, that's true. It does bring up the, is it Mitch Hedberg? Uh, I think it might be Mitch Hedberg again. What One of the best Bigfoot, comedians in the world. What if Bigfoot is blurry? Yes, that is a Mitch Hedberg. Isn't <laughs> I, it, it's not so much. Why is this depicted as abstract and more as what is this abstract thing? And how can I understand mm-hmm. it better? So it's just kind of approaching it from two different directions and who knows what the reality is. But that said, going into the tangible side of what she's looking at, I love stained glass and I completely mm-hmm. understand the awe that it can inspire. Like she, yeah. she talks about just the grandness of what's being presented to her with the sun behind it. And I remember, so I went to a Catholic university my first time going to college. And there are a few old buildings that I would have classes in that would have amazing stained glass like scenes. And it was always so cool to to just admire them during class. Thankfully this, none this... of them were like <laughs> my science or, or math classes. So I could actually stay on topic with those ones. But you know to to that point there was there was an interesting i think it was an article perspective something that i listened to the other day that said something along the lines of stained glass was ultimately invented as a way of educating kind of peasantry on religion through pictorial storytelling because it was so rare to have like pictures depict storytelling in any concept mm-hmm. that a lot of people could see so effectively religion religious sects were really the first ones to depict these things in in picture and as such people were fascinated because it was a, it was a form of human communication and storytelling and so i agree with you i have a profound reaction to stained glass i think stained glass is a beautiful b artisan c complex and, and tells a deep story like it is truly a unique it's a unique thing like re- regardless of your feelings about any particular Christian church, for instance, you can walk into a number of Catholic churches and see fantastic stained glass that tells, you know, at the very least a story visually, often the like stages of Christ on the cross and whatnot. Like those are the typical renditions, but it is always art regardless. For sure. So, and I, I think that's what they're trying, what Brandon Sanderson is trying to get at here with this depiction is this kind of loose understanding of a concept that has been told and repeated, but not real deep understanding, which is kind of what's being reiterated through a perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Because, like, we don't know what the deepness is. Vin doesn't have a fucking clue, but she she vaguely understands what it is. We vaguely, as as people raised in the Catholic faith, PJ, I'm going to pull on both of our youths here. We vaguely know what angels are. We don't really know what they are if they're real. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's all I about mean, those vague conceits and concepts. Cool, blonde, white dudes with trumpets, right? <laughs> No, that's actually not the way that the Hebrew Bible describes angels <laughs> no, I, and the way that the Christian that's, Bible. That's the joke. They're actually multi faceted creatures Crossland. with a ton of eyes. No, I know. I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm going off for people who don't know shit about angels. They're much more Lovecraftian than you assume, which is wild and also freaky. But yeah, we we move on from kind of this depiction of kind of the religious ideology and symbology that we see here into an interesting one that's a little bit of a different spin we we see a little bit more of what obligators do here as vin listens intently into a conversation what did you make of their position within the noble society now that we have more information not perfect but more i still don't have a firm grasp on what they do but in this context as far as I could tell, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm way off based contextually, like if I missed anything, let me know. But they seem to act as notaries for these parties. So like actual business can get done and verbal agreements can be held with sort of a higher regard and can actually be like, they, they can act as contracts. Like these verbal agreements, just chatting right. somebody up at a party can be a binding contract with this obligator notary. It, it it's actually great that you compared them to a notary because I didn't want to draw that connection necessarily, but it is entirely accurate. It is very much seemingly from the per- perception that we get here, they are they kind of fill that position of of notary and carry some sort of political, religious, social weight that we're not sure of yet. But they do have enough to like hold sway over the noblemen. I, I think it's Vin who says something along the lines of the noblemen watch the ska. And the obligators watch the noblemen. So there's this interesting hierarchy of, of of people here. Yeah, almost circular, but not really. Yeah, is that is that all you have there? I mean, you don't have to have more. I was just well, leaving it open. So it's it's an interesting dynamic, and it really depends on what capacity these obligators are there in. Are they hired to be there by the, the people throwing the party? Are they? sent there by the lord ruler or any other minor ruling dignitary like what are these what what capacity are they there in it seems to be mm-hmm. out of convenience but at the same time with that with that passage they're also there as a check right right so i don't know they're they're a check in a number of ways they're a check in the way that like the economy is not being manipulated emotionally by alamancers or mistings uh or mistborn variously they're they're a check on maybe like there, there are hints of other things that could be controlled by obligators and it calling them a check it reminds me of it's not really the biggest of spoilers it's very vague but like of whites in a way these are much more formal whites from the red rising universe okay in in my own mind you know what i mean like they're they're the judges mm-hmm. they're they're kind of lawyers they're notary i think is a great term to attach to them yeah so we we move from there to vin stumbling into something very unique as she stares across the room she sees a face a persona that she recognizes it is that of her father there's a really sad note here that further portrays the pain of vin as her as her status is that of an orphan child to quote reen had taken vin sneaking her in insisting that she at least see her father once 
though she still didn't understand why. And that is such a profoundly sad idea to, as a kid, to, to us, obviously, foundationally, as as people who grew up with our parents and whatnot, like it is a foundationally sad idea to seek out that kind of orphan parentage and like not have any respect, knowledge or care for them when you first see them. And I don't know, this is such a tough part to parse, but it so, feels so. Ugh. I've got a couple, couple thoughts here. First and foremost, this has to be like a whole bucket of emotions for her. like, I would have expected apathy or even animosity her at this point but it was much more internally confused about her own feelings i guess like we didn't get a lot of tangible actual feelings here that said that passage about like from reen insisted on at least seeing her father once though she still didn't understand why something's weird about that and i don't understand that that seems from what we've heard about reen uncharacteristic of it and I know we haven't heard a lot about Reen, but everything seems to be everything seems to be a lesson. So to have something that she's still confused as far as why doesn't seem characteristic of Reen in general. It's it's oddly empathetic or sympathetic, right? Like it's it's got this interesting like why would Reen want to show her this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It does have that odd, it leaves an odd taste in your mouth of like, okay, from our understanding of Marine, he's an orphan child who knows more than Vin does and has, has been through a lot more of kind of the, the shit as we might think of it right now because he's older and so he has a better grasp or understanding, but then passes on those awful, terrible, abusive lessons to, to lessons and quote to Vin through his own perpetual generational abuse of sorts that he's experienced and in turn, then switches to this very almost dynamic or empathetic or maybe sympathetic understanding of, of of fatherhood, of family, of parentage and the important therein. And that's that's odd. It's out of character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not I mean, not like fully out of character. Like I don't believe it's wrong, but it, it lends us to believe maybe there's more to Reen, even though he's not a character we interact with. So, yeah, I I had a stranger idea. Okay. And, man, there's a few of these points in this section where you get PJ's conspiracy brain coming out. This was just a random, random dude, a random obligator that Reen had some Mm. immediate ulterior motive to point out, quote unquote, their father. Father, yeah. And had, like deeply affected vin as far as like knowing who her father is but didn't actually mean anything and wasn't the truth okay i don't know i dig i'm gonna leave that there as your prediction yep sounds good that might be that might be a long-term <laughs> that might be a long-term prediction so shortly thereafter out on the balcony we're introduced to a young man who we find out to be named Elland. what do you think of this literate little scamp and his aggressively anti-house venture opinions of course we learn at the very end of this chapter that he is ellen venture uh, yeah which also um, has an interesting perspective on the whole thing i'm really not sure yet i get a really strange vibe off this guy this is another point where conspiracy brains is gonna come in my instincts are to not trust his disposition right now sure i feel like a lot of those statements wouldn't have been made 
if he was just talking to any unknown dignitary at his house. Like, it seems like he wouldn't have said anything, like talking about beating the ska too much or something like that. I feel like he wouldn't have said that without knowing that the person he was talking to would have been agreeable to it. So I think, (laughs) here we go again. Like I said, I think he's playing the long game. I think he knows at least to a certain extent what or who Vin is somehow. No idea how yet. And he's going to exploit that and try to get Vin to trust him. Interesting. Okay. Doesn't it seem out of nowhere how like perfectly in line with her she is? He is? It. It's almost too perfect. In in line, you mean in the way that he's... In opposition to his own house? Sure. Okay. It it does seem ideal, but I think especially given the reaction that we get later from, from some other characters and, like, Sazed's reaction even at the end of this chapter, it is one paints this as a problem, right? Not not for his kind of idealistic yeah, viewpoint. Yeah, that's a, that's a more from, different issue though well i i I know what i'm trying what i'm trying to sort is you know thinking from a story construction perspective we've got an idealistic problem we've got someone who appears to like line up very directly it it lends to an interesting kind of blend in the middle his his motivations lining up with hers is i don't feel like it's problematic so much or convenient which I, i i don't think i don't think you're that is, I'm stretching your definition to get it to that point, for sure. But it does feel to have this hint of, wait, what to it, if that makes sense? Like, right. there's definitely a question posed inside of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's also what the, what the kind of chapter is going for, right? Because he, she being new to court and whatnot, it feels like he's playing up into her being new to court. And that's kind of the reaction that that's a he's, good point. he's looking for. Because she doesn't really, she he knows that she doesn't know who he is, in theory, because she's new to kind of this, this court situation. And he's been through so many of these things that he's jaded to the idea and is just sitting there reading on his own fucking balcony in his, in his, coat that has a well-worn book pocket which is such an interesting like little descriptive thing that it's like yeah fuck this guy is like a reader and like a you know a nerd <laughs> by, by all <laughs> intents and purposes or for all intents and purposes so it's it's an interesting like character dynamic and i'm glad you pointed that out because it is it's it's a tough to describe thing but i don't feel like it's overdone if that makes sense it feels no. all on the nose but not overdone right yep yep yep, yep. i'm just i don't know Maybe I'm just naturally untrusting. I, mean, I don't know what it is. When when you're thinking about fiction, it, it is actually crucial to be naturally untrusting. Like it is, it is an important thing for a reader. Like being naturally trusting, reading as many books as you might over the course of your life. Never trust the fucking author. Like everything is meant to sublimate, like to supplant your expectations. So trying not to say sublimate, make that my new fucking word. <laughs> gambit. It's, it's not my new gambit. I've not said gambit since the first episode of this podcast here. But <laughs> I did I did intentionally plant that in the first episode. I, but I figured, yeah. yeah. With that, we move into chapter 13, which I would add the subheader, basically, ATM, the chapter. And, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just, it, it covers so much and so... It's a short chapter, which is, again, why like I appended it here kind of at the end to kind of leave us on a cliffhanger going in next week. But on top of that, it it is peak Sanderson in its own way, wherein we get an in-depth explanation as to something that we need to know in the world. But at the same time, things still move and things still actually happen. And it's 
it's peak Sanderson. I, I don't know how else to explain it. Before we get into that too much, though, I want to read, of course, the journal entry at the top. I know that I shouldn't let a simple Pac-Man perturb me. However, he is from Terrace, where the prophecies originated. If anyone can spot a fraud, would it not be he? Nevertheless, I continue my trek, going where the scribbled auguries proclaim that I will meet my destiny. Walking, feeling Rashak's eyes on my back. Jealous. Mocking. Hating. And this is really like, it, to me, it's a lot more color on our author and Rashek's relationship. He calls himself a fraud here or she or they or whoever it is. Yep. Very explicitly do not have a gender for this character yet. Yeah. We, we have a vague idea that the Lord ruler is a himself. Uh, he, but we do not have a gender for our journalist. Right. So going on the supposition that this is the Lord. My thought is at this point, calling yourself a fraud he is already able to use ATM. So he, here's here's where my gap in understanding in the lore goes. And I can't remember if it's been described yet or if I'm making this up based on the name. But at this point, seemingly the mists don't exist yet, aren't pervasive. And therefore, the term mistborn and mistings don't exist, whether or not the people that can use Allomancy exist or not. No idea. But the terms don't exist yet. So hypothetically, then, my thought would be that those allomantic powers would be brought in with the mists at the same time. So pre-mist, maybe that still existed to a certain extent, a little bit. Okay. And the Lord Ruler, who we're talking about, because that's definitely who's writing these, and I know that for sure. <laughs> I'm 100% positive it's Lord Ruler. <laughs> is, is a user of Atium. And like I mentioned before, is using that to feign godhood or feign, not godhood, but feign Messiah, divi divineness, yeah. divinity, yeah. divinity. Right, right. Um, Messiahhood. Yeah. Messiahhood. I like the term Messiahhood. What, what else do you call like a Messiah, right? Like it's Masonic. But yeah. Okay. But Masonic. The Masonic yeah. temple. All right. <laughs> but that's different. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, but sort of faking the ability to see the future through the use of Atium would be a great way to become a messiah. That's in your in your grander context, right, of like what Atium mm -hmm. could be. And again, yeah. I've also titled the titled this chapter Atium the chapter, uh which right. <laughs> seems seems to also fit in that, that kind of seems like fitting. We also have the the point where earlier, I think Kelsier seemed to be very, very confident that the Lord Ruler is not a Mistborn, right? Okay. Yes. I. Well, was it that? I thought that's what was I said. I think it might be. I think that might be right. Whether or not, whether or not it's true, I feel like yeah. Kelsier made that assertion. Right. So if that going off that, supposing he's right in that the Lord Ruler could be what we currently know as a Misting. That uses ATM exclusively, and maybe that is ATM misting. Hmm? Yeah, just In something ATM misting. So yeah, ATM misting. But but like I said, that term is is intrinsically tied to the mists, and I feel like the mists are new with the rise of the Lord Ruler, based on some context things about the stars and stuff like that. So okay. I don't know, dude. I, I'm I'm so glad. Like part part of the part of my wonder with this series is is sort of these questions, right? And the way that this 
this book series makes you consistently question the things that you know, which feels like a very kind of faith-inspired thing, where it's like you experience reality in the way that you're understanding it, and then faith in a lot of ways throws you questions against or for reality, and so then you you interrogate reality, and that is that's a book series to me in its own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah cool all right i'm i'm good that was great that's great i'm so glad that we now get to spend this time being like uh, not going from i don't fucking know what the shit that means to now like i have an idea <laughs> <laughs> which is much better <laughs> for, yeah. for everyone's sake which which is great and again on the beginning of next episode we will address kind of your thoughts on the on the previous sections and in, in sort of the readdressing them given your current information so right we start off this chapter by discussing the implications of being noticed by Lord Elland Venture with Renu and Kelsier, as well as other details from the ball. What did you make of the discussion that they share? Man, it just seemed too innocent. Oh. Te- what, what do you mean, oh? No, I, I just didn't expect that answer. So I said, oh, it's not, it's not crazy. It was just, like, oh. It, it was just too clean of sure. a conversation. There was no... I would have expected that conversation to happen after already getting to know somebody a little bit at least so i i just don't trust it i don't trust the the conversation in general okay. so so discussing the implications you just seem to not trust renew whatsoever oh 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 no sorry i'm still on the on the conversation with Ellen Venture. I don't trust him. Well, okay. So, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about the conversation about Ellen. You're talking about the conversation about the conversation. Yes. Yeah, yep, right. Different things. Yes. Yes. Okay. I think they... So they're interrogating what you were commenting on not trusting. Yeah. And they seem to kind of not be that disturbed by the context of the conversation or the content of the conversation, but more about the fact that this is the heir to this, (laughs) the most powerful family in the city. And therefore eyes are going to be on her more so than before, which is a fair thing to be worried about but they don't really get into the the content so much yes right right they don't really get into the depths it's it's more about the kind of contextual things that it is dealing with this high profile lord of which we get in the very beginning of the previous chapter we get the ranking of the houses and venture is the number one house but we knew that before because kelsier asks who who's on top and declan answers dachshund yeah dachshund sorry i don't know why i said declan Who's you're thinking about you you're you're thinking about Blade Runner already. I've never seen Blade Runner. Hmm? What? No, I haven't. Dude, how are we friends? <laughs> <laughs> My god. All right, we're going to move on from that real quick. And we're going to go back to what we were just talking about a second ago, which is ultimately Darkson, Helen Venture in the ranking of the Venture household. So, yes, Venture is said to be on top. Yes. It's then repeated and we get rankings from Sazed to Vin. And Vin is kind of the audience surrogate. Again, wow. <laughs> Sorry. It's fine. At the beginning, I was shocked about Spider-Man. and That'll post, change next I'm, week, right? Maybe. Yeah. Well, in, in, in theory, it does. But on top of that, it changes because... Oh, dear God. Are we talking about Spider-Man or Blade Runner? Are you talking Blade about... Blade Runner. Yeah, okay. You're going to see Blade Runner. I was thinking more about Spider-Man. I can't believe that you haven't seen Spider-Man 2. <laughs> oh, I'm still in shock. Uh, okay. Anyway. Yeah, so getting back to it, there, there's an obvious problem with him being from the wealthiest house here. Yeah, a few of them. A few Neat. obvious problems. 
All right. Well, we've had a long conversation about that that's kind of skirted around the whole issue. We're going to move on. After, Kelsier takes off into the night, and Vin pursues. She notices that he's somehow going much faster further, the blue line kind of fading out in the distance, and finds that Kelsier, or someone else, has built a secret mistborn road leading to Luthadel using ingots laid on the ground. I've always thought of kind of... Again, I actually wrote this before I saw Spider-Man today, so this feels really odd to be talking about it in context. But, you know, like you you think about Spider-Man and the logistical nightmare that his powers would be outside of New York City, right? Like if he were stuck in fucking Alaska, the dude would be near worthless. Like he would be he would not have a good time in Alaska. But he, like, in New York, crawls onto subways and it's to his locations, right? Like that's why yeah, it'd be tough. Yeah. He, he he uses he uses subways. He he like swings between buildings. No, he actually does use subways though. That's not <laughs> a joke. I'm fucking. I know with you, you thought it was a fucking joke, but like it's actually a real thing. But like, <laughs> I'm not. You think it's a joke? So to this point, this feels like a solution for kind of that problem, right? In its own way, where it's like you don't have metal if there's a forest between city to city. Right. Like you don't have good things to pull on and move between and get you from location to location. And this feels like an elegant solution to that problem. Yeah. I, despite having only seen a little bit of Spider-Man, I am I fucking hate you aware of Spider-Man. PJ has seen the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man in Civil War. Can we all just mock that for a moment? I've also, like... Thank you. All right. All right. Well... <laughs> no, that was, that was the mock time. All You're of good. you. <laughs> I genuinely, visually, the idea of this sort of thing, I was imagining inverse Spider-Man, so... Which is, I mean, fairly accurate in its own way. Like... Yeah. I mean, obviously, pushing and sort of pulling themselves, you know, from, like, it's it's an interesting dance, and I think even in the very first chapter that we read this week, chapter nine, Vin talks about it as an interesting, like, half gate, where it's like, pu- pushing and pulling is between walking and sprinting in its own way, where it's like, you are kind of, like, shoving yourself in this kind of odd gated step, and this feels like just an extension of that idea. Yeah. Feels like how, like, a train could work. You know, like a train powered by Mistborn. You don't need a steam engine. You just need a dude. You just need a bunch of dudes enslaved, against- enslaved into like well, being tied to the or hired <laughs> and okay. paid a reasonable wage. Do you think they're going to be hired to be tied to a train track or to a to a train car? <laughs> I'm not suggesting underneath, <laughs> but I mean, I, I feel your point hardcore <laughs> in my soul. So I'm going to I'm going to just let that pass and sink into oblivion. So <laughs> thank God we, we had this conversation about all of this. So after catching up, of course, inside of Luthadel, this quick trip between the two that should have that is much faster than like a horse ride which is crazy to vin there there's this quick game of cat and mouse between the two kelsier ultimately catches vin using the same trick that we talked about earlier dropping the coin pouch and kelsier then in turn shares with vin a little bead of liquid metal it's atm a metal that seemingly projects the future to allow mistborn to react to the next most likely outcome what do you think of this shit so what I really appreciated about this was a the way it was described, like the, the way the powers were described, but b the logic behind all of it. By shorthand, it seems, and I, I think I even used it earlier to say that you can see the future to a certain extent. And I will probably continue 
to refer to it as much or as such, just because it's easier to say that instead of talking about the probabilities of what paths are most likely for, for that individual. But from here on out and what I'm talking about in general, that is shorthand. Seeing the future will be shorthand for me because that's just easier to say. But it creates this really elegant way of defeating it as well in that same sort of set of logic in that if you can both see the next most likely outcome, you are both influenced by the other person's understanding of the next most like next most likely outcome. And it just spirals and devolves into, into uncertainty. So it just annihilates itself as far as a upper hand goes. Super cool. Interesting, especially to think about it that way. As two Mistborns fighting together, it reminds me of like a, in its own way, again, and this feels like an interesting, like kind of dated response, but it feels like a superhero team up, right? Where it's like the people have fought together long enough where they know each other's skill set and they do different things because they predict what, what the next person is going to do. Instead, we have a very literal representation of that where if Kelsier and Vin were to like side by side burn these things, they could see the next steps and then react a la like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of which gives like physical projections of like what the next move is going to be to like show you where they're going to like move through in a very unique way. And mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of that kind of action movie moments. But in addition, when they're burning the metal against each other. And that annihilation, like you mentioned, the constructive and destructive interference almost is so interesting. It's interesting, but I think the most interesting thing about it is it doesn't actually have a unique interaction with somebody else that has ATM burning. It's just that there is constantly changing decisions being made. Right. And that just means that prediction is impossible because the prediction is based on the other person's understanding of what's happening. And it is entirely a a conundrum. A gambit, some might say. I don't think that's right. Well, if if you have to make a choice, it's a gambit. A conundrum becomes a gambit. Yeah, I was kind of of trying to describe (laughs) it from the perspective of the ATM itself, which was abstract and not that great. Yeah. But but from the Mistborn user, like mm. the individual sees this projection, it, it reminds me in its own way as well of, and this is again pre this this movie that I'm going to mention, but Inception in the way that it thinks about like the way that people project themselves over like distances and things like that. It it reminds me of when like millions of different paths split out of people, and they can all take these different kind of like moments and paths, and we we see that sort of image in in the mirror mind. It reminds me of that in in which we see like these ghosts walking in different directions, and sort of the the infinite of another Mistborn's perception, and like trying to judge them. It's just it's such, and this is why it gets a whole fucking chapter in its own right. Like it it deserves a chapter to explain the way that this works. So the one thing that it says a couple times, but doesn't give the logic behind, like we, we get the reason behind it, but we don't get the logic behind how it works. And it, it's kind of the only thing so far, as far as Alamancy goes is just the tack on. to the, the fact that it changes your ability to process things. It, it increases your ability to understand, like it increases your brain activity to understand what's happening. And it doesn't give any further logic behind that other than you need to in order to be able to parse what, what you're seeing. 
Right. And I, I think that's exactly the point is in order to even understand the projections, you would also need to have your brain be able to understand it. And that feels like a, a given explanation to ensure that it's kind of like foolproofing in some way, I think. Like it's, it's, it's saying that basically, like regardless of what you think might be going on in the brain, the brain chemistry has to be able to adjust to accept this new information. So, yes, I agree. It's foolproofing to an extent, but I think what it's also doing is setting up a situation where ATM can be used for just increased intelligence and increased brain function as opposed to strictly predicting uh, movement. It's it's interesting that you'd think that, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I'm, I'm so... I'm so glad you feel wired into the series to me in a big way. Dude, I love this. I love this shit. Yeah. Like this is so grounded and rooted and seems to be following a very, very strict logic for the most part that like this is resonating with me perfectly. Cool. With that, the last note of the week before we get, go into kind of our final journal entry is he shares this, of course, this this knowledge, this understanding of ATM before daring to go into a crazy task next week, which is that of sneaking into Critic Shaw, the Lord Ruler's stronghold. What do you yeah. think about I, what we're going to see next week? I really appreciated Vin's persistence throughout this entire, like, scene and she makes a really good point that i want to highlight and i'm not going to really give any sort of insight beyond what she actually already said but the fact that he keeps saying he he has to wait until she's ready and she feels like she's never going to be ready in his eyes on top of the fact that he's always talking about how how much of a boon it is to have two misborns and she's never being utilized as a misborn so like those two things are perfectly appealing to Kelsier's like his sense of self and what he's saying. And like, yes, I said those things and I want to be like, I want to be true to what I say. So yeah, come on. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here in his mind, but I'm sure that's a part of it, but there's, there's an element of truth. Yeah. Either way, I think she makes good points. Even if, even if it's not, based on any sort of manipulation, which I I don't think that's the intention, but I thought it was a a fun spin to put on it. I don't think that she was intending to manipulate him, but more so just point out the hypocrisy of him saying all these things and then not letting her come along. Okay, cool, man. I'm, I'm super excited week over week that you, you are still so invested and dug in on a lot of these, these things with, with this book in the series. So very excited. We, of course, end this week with a very little prophecy here. It's not, it's not that little, but it's our final prophecy of the week going into chapter 14. Sometimes I wonder if I'm going mad. Perhaps it is due to the pressure of knowing that I must somehow bear the burden of an entire world. Perhaps it is caused by the death I have seen, the friends I have lost, the friends I have been forced to kill. Either way, I sometimes see shadows following me. Dark creatures that I don't understand nor wish to understand. Are they perhaps some figment of my overtaxed mind? And... What are your thoughts? I mean, next week. These are definitely the writings of the Lord Ruler. More and more, I'm okay. convincing myself of that. And I'm I'm either going to feel really dumb when it comes like when it comes time to like prove me wrong, or really dumb when I look back and say like, how the fuck did I not see this earlier? It's going to be one of those things. Either way, I'm going to feel dumb. 
Um, I'm prepared for that. But whatever he did, and I guess I'm not, I'm not, I'm going off of this supposition that the mists were also a part of the Lord Ruler's ascension to, to, to prominence, whatever that means. To the, to the throne or what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like that also brought the mists and I okay. guess I can't exactly explicitly recall where that was said, if it was said at all, but that's what's in my mind. So whatever brought the mists also brought, brought the mist wraiths that we've already been introduced to. And I can only imagine are the dark creatures that he's talking about. All right, man. Yeah. I love that prediction. I think that's a great way to go into kind of next and, and thinking about all the different things that we have to kind of talk about and focus on. So, all right. With this, we will move into our question of the week. PJ, what was the question of the week? What is your favorite prologue? What is your favorite prologue? So we have a number of answers here, mostly from patrons over the course. And again, next week's question is going to be identical just because we want to ensure that we get everyone's answers in over the course of our kind of elongated and odd uh, recording schedule. So no new question, same question, but we're going to read a couple of answers today. So PJ, do you have a favorite prologue? So of your head? Do you here, think here's what it? we're going to do because as Crossland knows, up until today, just now, like a couple hours ago, I've been working on finals. So True. I'm going to give my favorite prologue next week. Cool. All right. We'll lead off with some some patrons' favorites. So from Artificer, Dragon Mount, The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan. This is a really great one. It it leads in and explains kind of the breaking of the world that happened at, at the end of the last cycle of the wheel of time and it is such a good introduction in large to the fantasy of this science fiction dystopian fantasy world that it 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 breaks a lot of expectations and i think it is a very good example of a prologue i may have even gone so far as to choose it myself if i didn't have a slightly stronger example but that's that's a great one okay cool so Lex from the Discord. Didn't some random new character die like every single Game of Thrones prologue? LOL. Always found it funny. I think that's entirely true. I'm pretty sure. As far as the TV shows go. Have you read GOT prologue? Like any? I'm just thinking like early, like first episode of every season. So I was, I was approaching that as the prologue. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and that's that's and a fair point. We people did, die. People die in early in the seasons, pretty regularly. Maybe not the first one, but we did open this up wide to say, like, if you can think of a TV show that has a prologue or a movie that has a prologue wherein someone dies, like, definitely mention it. So, mm-hmm. opened up Clyde one and two that we had recommended two different times here from Shark Bait and Ivana is that of the Iron Gold prologue uh, by Pierce Brown. And I cannot help but agree. It is a fantastic prologue. It's got this interesting poetic wave to it that makes each paragraph feel distinct and unique in its own right. So That one's really good. It's really good. It's really good. To 
finalize our short list here that we have we also have from zef hawaiian of course uh, dark age prologue fucking rips bro and could not agree more <laughs> as i thought about this i can't believe that my brain skipped over the dark age prologue because the dark age prologue is brutal and grim it does so much in so little time and yeah i don't know it's it it's a tough one to beat tough one to beat. yeah yeah it is I will adjust, though, and match that with my own favorite prologue. You're doing yours next week. I'm going to do mine this week. My favorite prologues are those of the Greenbone Sagas prologues. So starting with Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy, there is a character in the very first book, and I'm going to talk about that prologue specifically named Barrow, of whom introduces this entire fantastical world through his lens in which he is attempting to pull a heist on green bones who are effectively gang members in inside of this interesting mob society and is trying to pull this heist and and they've got that has this kind of like magical element attached to them where jade powers their abilities and so we get we get a good taste of the world we get a good taste of the magic system and we get we get a taste of sort of the nonchalance and indifference of this character barrow right off the bat and it is so so good I love Barrow chapters, and I've I've gushed about my my love for the Greenbone Saga. It was my personal pull for reading it over Mistborn, but <clears throat> all told, very glad that we're reading Mistborn. But mm. I I highly recommend to anyone who is interested in anything like this to read the Greenbone Saga if they haven't yet. It starts with Jade City, Jade War, and then Jade Legacy. But so, it's so fucking good. I have been seeing a whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. series like on our on our instagram and stuff just because a i think it's topical yep at this point right like uh the, the third book at this point when we're recording this four or sorry two and a half weeks ago so it's very topical right. so very topical but also sounds really interesting would it be fair to me to fair of me to think that we will cover this at some point I would like to, however, I would also say that this is one that I would maybe say you could read on your own. Yeah, um, but also I don't have time to read things on my own, Crossland. I know you don't yet, but I think you will in six months, and I think you'll you might you might want to. And I would I would pitch maybe. this one up as a potential read on your own, and then maybe we do like a, a discussion episode once you're done with each book or something like that. It is it is a fantastic series that I love to death. I think I think I talked about it inside of our Discord again. You can join our Discord, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. But I, I cried in this final book five or six times, and I am not generally so moved by prose so as to leak from my face. And it it genuinely like hit me in ways that I never believed that prose could Jade legacy is one of my favorite books of all time, like top 10 favorite books of all time. And I, I realized that I've turned the end of this episode talking about prologues into like a whole pitch for this whole thing. But <laughs> dear God, if you haven't, if you haven't read or considered the series, give it a go. It's going to be adapted into a TV show and Peacock bought the rights, sold producers, attached writers, everything. It will be a TV show in the near future. And it will be amazing because the books are amazing. There's no 
There's no world in which you don't adapt this perfectly because of how brilliantly Fondly has written it. So them's the feels and I just added a little rant on the end of this episode. No, no I think it was good. worth it. I think think if anyone needed a pitch on a new series to tackle, that was it. And if for whatever reason you're already through Mistborn, you're listening to us in post, you've read Red Rising, you've read a number of things. This is in my it'll be coming out in January at this point, but I, I recorded a video talking about recommendations post red rising. This is in my top three. This is my second pick for recommendations post red rising. So definitely go give it a fucking read <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you can't though. Cause you're, you're fuck fucked and cuckolded to whatever I tell you. To. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> All right, let, let's well, talk I about, put it that way. <laughs> let's talk once again about like the entire point of this show, right? In that it was to force me to read more, mm-hmm. or force me to read. Period. I'm right. I'm, I don't have a whole lot of time to read. That, it otherwise, is, it is a series that I so want to get to, but I, I fear that given our current list, I don't know if we'll get to it while it's relevant. So. Yeah, but does it have to be relevant if you still love it? No, I fucking adore it. And that's yeah. that's the reality. And I would definitely talk about it at length. But like, yeah, fair. I mean, if there if somebody just bought the rights to the TV show, let's talk about this for a second. It can, we we it actually can be do cut. talk about adaptation. Yeah, quite a we, bit. We talk about adaptation quite a bit. But if somebody just bought the rights to the show, <laughs> that's going to be a couple well, of they, years. They maybe a, they bought it a year ago. So okay. they've actually been in development for a year now. And actually, it's not it's not just bought the rights. It's that they have a writer and director attached and they're like almost pre-production in casting phase. OK, so like I have no idea what that close. sort of timeline is. But Probably if it's like another six months to a year until filming maybe okay so i think that timeline works out pretty well for us to start tackling the potentially book that also before leans around us, the release of the tv show that also leans on us believing that peacock is going to do a good enough job peacock does a pretty to, good job with ap bio and that's the only thing i know from peacock so <laughs> Well, it, and I mean, like, it's it's not as though it's a bad streaming service. It's just a new one, no, right? Like, Halo, also, Halo is coming out of Paramount Plus, right? Like, another streaming service. We love and believe in Halo. How many of our friends do you think are going to pay for Paramount Plus to watch Halo? They won't. And I won't. Precisely none. I, yeah, episode, maybe, we, but. maybe we close it out. So, with that, <laughs> next question of the week is, again... Send us in your final thoughts on prologues. Anything else that might surround your opinion on prologues and the stories therein, we will cover in the fifth episode. After that, we'll be moving on to a new question of the week. That's actually next week's our halfway point in this book, PJ. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. I've I've mentioned our guest to a number of patrons. Have you mentioned it to Do me? You know, I don't. I, do you know who our guest is? No. <laughs> we, we actually we had requests from patrons, fans alike, for us to bring in other friends that we have who aren't necessarily like bookish community members or anything like that. And so I figured there was no better way to kick off this this series with one of our friends of whom read the book very recently upon a recommendation and enjoys it and so we are going to have Lindsay lundine come on and chat with us about the end of mistborn awesome that'll be great yeah 
Yeah. Lindsay's great. Uh, Lindsay, she's also Lindsay's that, wonderful. That fun bonus episode. Yeah. That we're doing that I haven't talked about yet. Uh, but she will be an absolute asset and i'm very excited to kind of proceed from that point i i think that the way that we've chatted about the book so far it's gonna be so with that next week we are going to be covering chapters 14 through 19 again it's a similarly length section it'll be about that like kind of 80 ish page mark inside the paperback very excited to kind of chat about the contents therein should be a fun time, folks. Yes. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, of course, to Tim and Andrew, our producers, for helping us make this whole thing run. You can check out all of our links in the show notes. You can find the schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, drinks. Those are on the websites. Social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. If, so, in case wait, you wait, didn't wait, wait, know... Wait. Wait, well, wait, I got my th- I got my next thing. Oh, yeah, right. Sure. If you don't want to look in the show notes because you're lazy like I am, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Words Whiskey Pod. And if you want to send anything to us via email, be that predictions for me to answer or whatever questions, any literally anything. We love getting emails from listeners. Words and whiskey show at gmail dot com. And if you are interested in supporting us through our Patreon, that is patreon.com slash words and whiskey. And again, of course, if, if you if you are unable to give via Patreon or what have you, a, a review means the world to us. If you're able to write a review, leave us a five star. And any other show that you support in inside of any podcast you listen to, go go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts and or platforms you listen to. It is bonkers. critical. It is bonkers how important it is to like actually getting like onto the feeds of like recommended for other people that haven't already heard of us. Like it's wild how important five star reviews are. So it is wild how important those reviews are. And I don't know if a number of shows have put it into that context, but that is actually what we've seen in terms of kind of changes week over week, especially starting mm-hmm. small to big. So any any review that you can give any of the small shows that you enjoy and like and listen to, absolutely go ahead and do that on the platform of your choosing. It makes a massive difference. And uh, yeah, can't recommend yeah. it enough. Yeah. Anything we- else, Crossland? No, man. I'm good. See All you right. next week. Yeah, see you guys next week. This is Happy so much fun. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.